So my name is Aaron Krauss. I am the president CEO and now affectionately known as the daddy of the Scrub Daddy. I have created the Scrub Daddy Sponge, which became famous on Shark Tank in 2012. Uh, we've actually gone on to become the most successful item and company in the history of the show. And we are located just outside of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania in Fullcroft. Are you born and raised there? How do you end up there? So I was born and raised in the western suburbs of Philadelphia, and I have probably about uh, 50 to 60 relatives who live in the immediate area. As I was growing up, my parents and my specifically my grandmother told me that if and when I decided to move out of the Philadelphia area, that I would also be moving out of the will and any of my inheritance. So <laughs> I'm locked into this area for the absolute rest of my eternity. And to be honest, I love Philadelphia and I'm a big Philadelphia sports fan. In fact, the colors of Scrub Daddy, which the box is this bright orange, is, is actually a nod to my uh, Philadelphia Flyers ice hockey team. I'm a huge Philadelphia Flyers fan and also a nod to my alma mater, which is Syracuse University, the Orangemen. So is a strategic and financial decision to stay where you're located? I think Philadelphia is a really central location in the Northeast Corridor. I am about an hour and a half from New York City, about two and a half hours from Washington, D.C. I can be at the beach in an hour. We're uh, strategically located right next to Philadelphia National Airport, so I can hop on a flight in, you know, within an hour. And one of the greatest assets of the company is I'm only about 35 minutes away from QVC's headquarters, which is where I film live television shows sometimes two to three times a week. Do you want to tell us about when you graduating from Syracuse, what you graduated in, and were you an entrepreneur right from then or even earlier on? Well, actually, I've been an entrepreneur since I was about 10 years old. My father always was very hard on me in terms of respecting money. And, you know, I remember very clearly being a, a 10 year old child and all my friends were getting this new, new video game called Atari. And I had asked my dad, you know, I wanted an Atari. And he said, it's too expensive. Earn it yourself. And I was like, how would I do that? He was like, well, if you make your bed, that's worth a dollar. If you mop the floor, that's worth a few dollars. And I started doing chores all around the house, earning money until I you know, was able to buy my first Atari video game. And I think it was like $150. And so from that point on, I, I always understood that I could convert my work into things that I wanted. And, and that really is what led me on the whole path to where I am right now. When I turned about 13, my birthday present was from now on, you buy your own sneakers. And you know I couldn't believe that that was my birthday present, but he wasn't kidding. And when I wanted a new pair of shoes, I started doing chores around the house. But at that point, the chore that I had discovered made the most money was washing cars. I think I got $10 for washing a car. And I became so good at washing my parents' cars. And when I was done their cars, I started walking around the neighborhood, knocking on people's doors, seeing if they wanted their car washed for $10. And I started full-fledged business that I ran all through high school and during my college years. And by the time I graduated, I actually had a list of about 300 people in the immediate area, neighbor and friends. I, I had a full business going. When I was graduating Syracuse with a degree in actually psychopharmacology and, and a minor in marketing, my dad asked me, you know, what are you going to do with your life? I just spent $100,000 on beer. And I said, I'm going to start my own business. And he said, well, that's great. You know, it sounds fantastic. What kind of business do you think you'll run? You know, what do you, and I said, well, I've been washing cars for the last 10 years. I think that's what I'll do. And he was my, my mom was crying and my grandmother was said, you know, you can just disown him. Um, you got to realize that you know, I come from a very academic uh, family. My 
my dad's a cardiac surgeon. My mom's a pediatrician. My older sister is one of the top judges in the United States. My younger sister at the time was at an Ivy League school at Duke, and I was going to become a professional car washer. So that was like uh, not the path that they had probably expected for me, but that's what I ended up doing. Uh, my dad said that he would loan me as much money as I could save in the summer. He would match it at a loan at two points higher than the bank because I was a bad credit risk. <laughs> and and uh, and with that, I saved up about $8,000. My dad matched it and I moved out of my parents' garage and started my own business in 1992. Were you in your parents' garage while you're going to school? Yep. I was just like a lot of entrepreneurs. My business started out of the garage and I had converted my parents' two-car garage into a full detailing facility. I had an office that I wrapped in plastic, uh, had a computer in there. I actually had the first Macintosh computer ever. I had already started to run it like a business. In fact, I had set up a, a program that every I would wash someone's car and then I would record it. And every three months, it would remind me to contact that person again. You know, when I came in the morning and I looked at the computer, it would say, here's a list of three or four people you can call today and tell them it's been three months since you had your car washed or waxed. Would you like your car done? And that's how I drum up business every day. And did you get in trouble in the neighborhood? Was it residential neighborhood that you're having these cars come in and out? No, I mean, miraculously, and I guess luckily, my parents' house was set back from some other people's homes. So no, I, I, I never did get in trouble. But, you know, it was, a, it was a different era back then. I'm not sure if you, can, if you can get away with such things right now. I mean, I was doing stuff without insurance. And, you know, I think I probably put my parents at risk. But I think it was a less litigious time. And I, I kind of got away with, with a lot. But it was a really good lesson because when I did move out and I started, you know, my dad, my dad was actually charging me rent to use his garage. So I, I did understand about that. But then I had to realize that I needed to build into my cost in the cost of insurance, you know, both for liability. And then when I hired people for workman's comp, um, so it was a, it was a really good uh, lesson, you know, when I moved out on, on all the different businesses, uh, all the different uh, expenses that it would be required to run the business and how to adjust my pricing. Were you hiring people? Because it sounds 300 cars. It sounds like you might need to. Well, we were doing, you know, at one point we were doing five, six cars a day, but then it started growing. We started, once I started out of my parents' garage, we started getting dealerships. And at the point that the, the business was doing like seven, eight cars a day, we did start hiring people. And then when we were doing, you know, 15 cars a day, I had about eight or nine employees. And that kind of brings me into where I'm at right now, because at that point, we were running around like crazy. We were detailing cars from morning till night and then doing rags and washing all night. And unfortunately, you know, in, in the business I was in, you couldn't really pay top dollar people. I mean, I couldn't afford to pay someone $25 an hour to detail a car. So a lot of my employees were not educated and not really the best people. And unfortunately, I caught a bunch of them drinking one day. They were pouring out their Coke cans and filling them with vodka. And so I ended up firing five or six people that day. And even though I felt like the big boss going around firing people, at the end of the day, I kind of looked around and was like, oh my God, who's going to detail all these cars? And it was me. <laughs> so I was back on the assembly line polishing a car and I damaged the car one day because of the shape of the, the buffing pad that I was using. And I just, it, I had an epiphany. I was like, you know, why does the pad look like this? Why doesn't it have beveled edges? Why doesn't it have a recess in the back of it? And so immediately I, I had this, I, this concept of what this, this buffing pad should look like. And I started looking for it. I called around. I went to some stores and 
nothing like that existed. So I ended up going to a family friend and patenting it. And that was my my first patent. And I, I've had ideas since I was a little kid. I've always had you know crazy inventions. A lot of them have been more gadget. But this was one that was an actual product. And I, I ended up applying for a patent. And I actually spent about six to eight months figuring out how to make it. And after I, I made it, I, I put it into some trade magazines. I started using it in my factory first. And of course, my employees thought it was the greatest thing ever. And then we started trying to sell it. And literally within like three months, we were selling it all over the country. And within about six months, it was selling around the world. But we sold the detailing business and started going into the manufacturing of buffing pads. So you're telling us basically you're starting your car wash that you had fired everybody. And can you pick it up from there? The one day I had gone out and was working with one of my employees and his breath smelled like alcohol. And I had found out that a whole bunch of my people were actually pouring out their Coke cans and filling them with vodka. And so I, I went around and it was the first time I'd ever had to fire people. And I just went around and was like, okay, you're fired, you're fired, you're fired. And then I was like, oh my God, who's going to do the five cars that are in the bays? That was going to be me. So I grabbed a buffer and started polishing the cars. And unfortunately, as I came around this Mercedes, I was trying to, trying to do a great job getting underneath the mirror. And I ended up breaking the mirror off the car. And it cost me $700 to fix it. And I was like, "What is the, it's not my fault. It's the, the product. The pad is made wrong. And so I kind of had this epiphany that the pad should have beveled edges. It should have a recess in the back. And I've been kind of inventing little gadgets and contraptions since I was a little kid. But this was the first time I had an idea for a new product. And I actually went about trying to figure out how to make it and patent it. And in about, took me about eight months of work until I had some prototypes. And then we started using them in my detail shop and my employees loved them. And we ended up putting some ads in some trade magazines. And within about three months, we were selling them uh, around the country. Within about six months, we were selling them around the world. And the business was growing so quickly and was so lucrative that I ended up selling the detailing car wash business. And I went into manufacturing buffing pads full time. That was about 1994, 95. That transition, can you talk about it? How many hours were you spending on this pad versus, I guess, the money that was coming in from the car wash and when you're making that transition? Well, during that period of time, I had a business partner. When I moved out of my parents' garage and started washing cars, as the business grew, I couldn't really handle all of it myself. And I really wanted to share the experience of growing a business with somebody. You know, one day I ended up uh, doing a customer's car and it happened to be right next door to one of these kids that I grew up with uh, in the neighborhood. So I stopped by his house to see what he was doing. And this is in 1992. If people remember, the country was in a bit of a recession. So people who were coming out of college didn't necessarily have a job right away. And, you know, when he came to the door, he was still like, you know, in his uh, sleeping clothes and was like, hey, what's up, man? And I was like, oh, my God, I've been working for the last like 20 hours. What are you doing? And he was like, oh, I've applied to a bunch of places. No one's hiring. I said, you need to come see what I do for the day. So he came and spent the rest of the day with me. And I offered him 50% of the company if he wanted to buy in. And he borrowed some money from his dad and he became my business partner. So when I invented the buffing pad, the concept, I went to him and I said, listen, you know, we have a viable business going. We don't want to drop that just so I work on this project. If you will continue to run the business and allow me to use some of the money from the company, I will spend my time trying to develop this product. And when we do, you'll own half the company. And he agreed. And so, you know, he upped his hours and I upped my hours. And we had, you know, just in case the idea flopped, we still had a business to fall back on. And in case it went so you know, really well, he would uh, enjoy the, the benefits of, of the new product as well. When you're developing the product, how much money were you putting into that from the other business? And can you tell us about how you went about doing that? Sure. So it was very little money. We didn't have a lot of funds at all. I borrowed about $5,000 from my dad to apply for the patent. And most of the money that I was using was just for travel to go to 
different companies who, you know, had foam and knew how to cut foam. And I literally went up and down areas in the Northeast from about Boston down to Washington, D.C., and met with companies whose whole job is to cut foam into whatever shapes you want. And so, you know, a lot of it was I was just driving because I didn't really have money for airfare. So I would, you know, and, and you have to remember in 92, there really wasn't an internet. So I was looking in the phone book, finding different companies that made foam, getting recommendations from people over the telephone. And they would say, oh, you should visit this company up in Boston. And I would call that company, set a meeting up, and then I'd drive there, tell them my idea, show them the concept. And I got laughed out of everyone's office. I'm not kidding you. I'm a, I'm a 20, you know, two, 23 year old kid out of college with a crazy idea. And all these companies said, listen, kid, if it could have been made, it would have been made already. The reason it's not made is because it's so complicated to cut this soft, you know, spongy material into this very specific shape that you want. There is no equipment that can do that. And if you want to build that equipment, first give me $50,000, then I'll try to build it. If I build it, I want another $50,000, and then we'll talk about how much each one of them is going to cost after we start producing them, and I know what my cost is going to be. And I was like, oh, my God. And I have to be honest, at around six months, I was pretty frustrated and almost gave up. I was I was very, very close to giving up. And then I remembered one of my... Um, I think I told her earlier in the interview, my mom was a pediatrician and she was a doctor for many of the kids in the neighborhood. And when I, one of the summers when I came home from, from college, this is actually a really funny story because I told you I'd been watching cars through all of college, but there was a small time when I didn't do it. And it was my freshman year. I came home after my freshman year of college and I thought I was a college kid now. And I wouldn't need to wash cars anymore. And my mom got me an internship at the, the, it's the world's largest manufacturer of spiral staircases. She took care of the owner's kids. And my mom had talked, talked to him. You know, would you have my son, you know, intern? He's a college freshman going into his sophomore year. And he said, sure. So I, uh, you know, I put on a suit and tie and I went for my first day as an intern. And when I got there, the owner came out covered in black soot and he started laughing at me. He was like, go home and put clothes on that you never want to see again. <laughs> and, uh, and I did. And within hours, I was on an assembly line with a welding helmet, literally welding staircases with a, with a hot welding torch. And it was the most grueling, miserable job I had ever been in. The factory was 150 degrees and the environment was smelled terrible and I was like what am I doing like I'm supposed to be a college kid now and about a week into the job the owner came up and said hey how's it going I said wow it's it's a lot tougher than I thought you know I thought I'd be like in an office like getting you coffee or something like that and he was like oh no no that's not at all but you're gonna learn how to do it from the ground up and I said well the only the only thing I like about this is the welding torch kind of smells like cinnamon and he said oh don't smell that it's highly toxic <laughs> well <laughs> So with that, I put the torch down. I said, you know, this really isn't for me. Um, and, and I, I literally went home and picked up my sheet of all the customers that I used to have car washing. And I'll be very honest with you. I learned two really valuable lessons that day. The first one is you need to love what you do every day. And the second is I can never work for someone else in my life. And that's exactly the turning point for me. I literally restarted the car washing business and I never have worked for another person in my life since then. So. The interesting part of the story, how it comes back, I learned a lot from that guy. That guy was one of the most down-to-earth owners of a major manufacturing business, and he was very hands-on, and he knew everything about machines and about welding. And So after we got to the stumbling block and I could not make this product, and everywhere I was going, people told me it couldn't be, couldn't be made, I called him and I said, hey, Rich, 
everyone tells me this can't be done. Is it possible? And he said, Aaron, come down here every day at five o'clock and you and I will work on it. And within a couple of weeks, he had taken apart a couple of band saws and drill presses and had made me, you know, together, he helped me, we fabricated some very, very basic rudimentary manual machines that we could cut the product. And we actually made a part and I took it to my shop and I started using it. And then I realized that we had something really special. And so we took these machines and made them a little bit better, uh, but they were still all by hand. And we started manufacturing these pads and putting them to the magazines. And that's how the business actually got off the ground. Overall, how much did that cost comparatively to, you know, the guy saying 15000 so it, like. <laughs> it cost me, uh, if it cost me $1,000, that's that would have been a lot, I think. Right. Yeah. No. Yeah. Well, that, that's pretty unbelievable to go from basically what you're thinking of 100000 to try it out and then you're just playing yeah. around with some stuff. So how long did it take when you were trying to cut this foam with that? I mean, the time that he and I started, it took us two or three weeks and he, he made some really basic equipment. After we saw that it worked, maybe a month later, we had equipment that I could actually use in a, you know, in my factory or I could take it from him. And I started cutting buffing pads on my own. We converted one of the car washing bays. Instead of washing cars in it, we, we put these machines in there and we covered them with a tarp. And during the day, we washed cars. And then all night, my partner and I would cut buffing pads. And I'm telling you, we were putting in, we were working literally 24 hours a day. We were running the car washing business during the day, making the pads at night. And that was unsustainable. And it only took about two or three months. We were like, dude, we can't do this anymore. And that's when we decided... You know, which one of these businesses makes more sense? And obviously making the pads was going to become, you know, a worldwide phenomenon and washing cars was going to be very localized. So you both just sold the business together and he came and joined you full time at the new business? Yep. Again, I had offered him half the company if he had let me off so that I could, you know, pursue this dream and he would run the business. So when we decided to do that, we sold the car washing business, which we owned together. And interestingly enough, we actually didn't sell the business. It's an interesting lesson. We felt that we had already gotten some brand equity in our name. The name of the company for the car wash was called Dedication to Detail. And we thought that you know, we started selling the pads in the same company and people already knew that that was the name of the company was making the pads. So we didn't want to sell the company and lose our name. So we actually just sold all the assets of the car washing business to another guy. And we continued holding the same asset called dedication to detail. So we didn't sell the stock of the company. We only sold off the car washing assets and we kept the buffing pad assets. Was that your plan or did someone tell you that that's a good way to go? How did you think about doing it that way? I think my partner and I had, you know, sat together and we're like, if we sell the business, you know, are we going to change the name? And we were like, well, the name, we have the name all over all of our ads already. Like, we don't want to do that. And I think it was a decision that we made together that we had already built goodwill and brand equity into the name and we didn't want to sell that. Did you buy a warehouse or rent a warehouse? And can you tell us about that? Yeah. So we, after we sold the car washing business, we rented a very small 400 square foot, almost a storefront. And we put the machines in there. And, and that's where we actually started out, you know, making and cutting the product. And we, we lasted there about a year. It didn't take long to outgrow that location. 400 square feet is not a lot of space. And, uh, you know, the inventory would come in and we would make it and ship it out. And we couldn't even afford to bring in additional inventory because it was, there was nowhere to put it. But the, the real thing that moved us out was we, we were cutting these things by hand every day. And to be honest with you, it was probably the most dangerous thing I've ever done in my life. We were, you know, handling thousands of pieces around a straight blade bandsaw and drill presses. And, uh, I can't tell you how many times I got really close to cutting off my finger until one day I cut it so bad it was hanging by a thread. And I ran to my mom because she's a doctor and she's pretty much sewed it back on. 
after that, I realized that it wasn't worth me losing a digit to make money. And so we, we, we started looking for robotics companies that could build a machine that, you know, an operator wasn't involved in. And, and this was a time where we really grew up from, you know, manually cutting buffing pads to thinking about growing a business with employees and mass producing and automation. And this changed my life forever because we went to this company up in North, in uh, South Jersey and they built a piece of equipment for us. Uh, it was about $85,000. So we got a bank loan. Uh, put a bunch of our money into it, and we end up building this really high-tech piece of, of robotic equipment, and it was a piece of artwork. And I remember the day that they they deliver it. Well, the first thing was it wouldn't fit into our our <laughs> 400 square foot. They couldn't yeah. get through the door. Right, right. They physically couldn't get through the door. So we we had to move. So we end up renting a 3,000 square foot facility with you know dock doors and brought this machine over. And they dropped it off and we started making pads and I was in absolute heaven. We were making pads in three times the speed with a hundred percent precision and with, you know, the operator's hands weren't anywhere near the blades. The only problem was within a week it stopped working. And I called the company up and said, Hey, what's going on? You know, it stopped, it stopped working. And they're like, yeah, well, there's, this is a custom piece of robotic equipment. There's no warranty on it. There's no manual on it. You <laughs> own the equipment. When it breaks, you got to fix it. I was like, well, I don't know the first thing about it. They said, okay, well, the engineer, it's $600 an hour and that, and plus travel time. And I was like, what? So I was like, but I had to do it. So they, the guy drove over, took a half hour to get there and a half hour to get back. So it was $600 just in travel. And they came in and he turned a screw and the machine started working. And he said, that'll be $1,200. I was in absolute shock. The next time it broke, I figured out where that screw was and I turned it. <laughs> and the next time something else broke, I had no idea what I was doing, but I would figure out how to do it and fix it and diagnose it. And I, literally, I became an expert in pneumatic, robotic, solenoids, cylinders, PLCs, programming computers, programming PLCs for I mean, I had to learn all of it by doing it because I had no other options. We didn't have the money to, to pay the engineers to fix it. So we would just search the Internet, find out something and fix it ourselves. And that was really what yeah, time period so, was this that they were charging six hundred? Like, is this still early mid nineties? This is no, this is around this is around ninety eight, ninety nine. Okay. So, okay. Uh, so then that was really valuable because you know, then I wanted to build another piece of equipment for gluing the machines. But this time, I realized that the aptitude that I had had as a kid for gadgetry and taking things apart and putting them together and for inventions was a rudimentary understanding of engineering. And while I wasn't formally trained, I consider myself kind of like a crackpot engineer. And so the next machine, I knew I knew what I wanted and I hired an engineer for the detail, but I built the machine and we, instead of a, a robotics company, the engineer and I worked together and we detailed out all the parts, had a machine company cut the parts up. And then we built the machine ourselves. And that saved me a lot of money. And it, and then I knew exactly how it was built. So I knew exactly how to fix it. And and that was that was amazing. It was my first machine that I, you know, was w w built. And it, and it was li another life-altering machine that really saved us a lot of time. And at this point, the business was just was really growing in leaps and bounds. And then in 2000, I invented something really unique. I invented the first quick connect, disconnect, automatic centering, double side reversible buffing pad. Try saying that 10 times. And uh, I got two patents on it. And we began selling this product that all the other pads in the market, you Velcro attached them. But ours had a, a quick connect adapter, similar to like an air hose or your garden hose, where you can just kind of pull back and it just pops off. And then you can just click it on. It was really cool. If you ever seen like a keychain that you can like press a button and pull it back and just remove the keychain. 
and then also attach it. It was similar to something like that, but it was for or a pressure yeah, washer. A pressure, exactly, yeah, like, just like a pressure washer, except that you know on the pressure washer the thing still spins. This one it had to lock and dry. Right. Okay. And so yeah, so ours was a hexagon. Anyway, I got two patents on it, and every time we put this on someone's buffing machine. You could only use my pads and you only wanted to use my pads again. And so we were just going around giving away adapters and taking the entire market. And in 2007, the number one industry leader in the world that owns 80% of the world market share in buffing pads gave me a call. And that is a multi-billion dollar conglomerate called 3M. I don't know if you're familiar with 3M. 3M makes scotch tape. They make filtreet. They make post-it notes. And they make about 50 products that you touch a day without realizing. They make like, you know, 100 components in your car. They make tons of things in airplanes. They make computer screens. You ever seen the, the film that goes over your computer so people can't see it from the side? That's 3M. Um, they're just they're an absolute powerhouse. Uh, but in the automotive industry, they really dominate in buffing pads, too. And they couldn't take what I was about to do to them. So they ended up buying the entire company in 2008. Uh, so we started nego- negotiations in 2007, and they acquired the business in 2008. The really cool thing is, in the negotiation, we couldn't agree on the price. Of course, I wanted the moon, and they were like, uh, you need to be somewhere you know, around uh, the ground. And I was like, yeah, no. And so we fought about it for a long time. And ultimately, the way we made a decision was there was a bunch of products that I had patented along the way. There was a brush for cleaning buffing pads, an apron that kept the cord over your shoulder, some little foam tips for, for getting like into ashtrays and cup holders, and a stupid sponge for scrubbing your hands called Scrub Daddy. And they were like, we don't want those products and we're not going to pay you for them. And I was like, well, then I'm not going to sell them to you. And they were like, that's fine. Cut them out of the deal. So we removed these products out of the acquisition. And I sold the entire company except for a few accessories that I started a new company called Innovative Accessory Products. And I sold Dedication to Detail to 3M in 2008. And I kept this stupid sponge called Scrub Daddy, which consequently went into a box called Junk, sat in the back of the factory from 2008 until 2011. In 2011, my wife started nagging me to clean the lawn furniture one day, and I started out using a traditional sponge, and I scratched all the paint up. And I realized that she was going to kill me if I continued. So I started thinking, what could I use that could scrub this and not scratch it? And that's when I remembered these old sponges that I created in 2006 to scrub mechanics' hands. And I thought they might work. And I've got a whole bunch of them sitting around and they're just collecting dust. So I'll bring them home and I'll use them. I'll throw them out. So I brought them home and I started using them. And it was the greatest thing that I ever scrubbed something with. So before this, we'd only scrubbed our hands. We had been developing in 2006 a material to clean dirty hands, specifically mine. (laughs) The reason my hands were getting dirty was I was the only one who knew how to fix the equipment. So I was president half the day and the, and the other half of the day, the machine would break and I'd be in the back underneath it getting covered in oil and grease and I couldn't get my hands clean. So I started a project to invent something that could clean my hands better because I didn't like the the options that were out there were like lo, uh, lava soap or gojo, which is basically lotion with rocks in it. And it feels terrible on your hands. I have an aversion to the way it feels. And so what I really wanted was something that I could put my soap in and scrub really well with. And that led me to invent this new material. And unfortunately, we tried to sell it to the car washes and the body shops and the mechanics who were our customers of the buffing pads. And none of them wanted to pay $4 for a sponge to clean their hands. They were all like, you're out of your mind. And so the product kind of died. And that's why 3M did not attribute any value to it. And so we kind of put it in a box. But here I am, 2011, and I'm scrubbing my lawn furniture with it. 
and it's doing the greatest job ever. And then I bring it inside to the sink and I start doing the dishes with it. Well, it had two holes in it and the holes were to clean your fingers and the ridges on the top were to get underneath your fingernails. But it turns out that it's the greatest shape ever to do your dishes with because instead of holding a sponge on the outside, you put your fingers into the eye holes and you can get all the way to the bottom of cups, bowls, mugs and coffee pots and muffin tin. And I looked at it one day as I was doing the dishes and thought if I put a smile face in it, I could do the silverware. And that's when the, the sky opened up. And I was like, oh, my God, we missed it. This thing has nothing to do with scrubbing a mechanic's hands. It's actually the greatest kitchen scrubbing tool in the world. And by the way, I'm using it a month and it hasn't smelled ever. It rinses completely clean. It's dishwasher safe. It doesn't scratch any surfaces. And I literally ran to the office, uh, applied for a patent on the smiley face sponge and called the company that made the material and locked up exclusivity on the material so they couldn't sell it to anyone else. And I started this new adventure called Scrub Daddy. Yeah. And before we, I guess, jump into more detail on Scrub Daddy, can you just tell us about, I don't know if you can tell us how much you sold for, but can you tell us what else you might have learned by selling your company to 3M? And was your partner still part of it and on board with everything? Yep. So at the time, uh, my partner and I each were 50-50 partners. And, uh, you know, selling to 3M was probably one of the greatest, you know, experiences of my life. Even even being courted by a company like 3M is, is an accolade that you know it made me feel like I had really I had done something really unique and special here we agreed to sell the, the company to them together and the amount is is not disclosed it's you know, I had to sign confidentiality with them so I can't talk about uh, you know what the amount was but it was it was enough that we were both ecstatic and it was a life-altering experience I mean it, it was it was way more money than I'd ever seen in my life and you know for some people it's enough money that you could say hey I'm, I'm gonna go retire and, and honestly, I felt like my, my business partner at the time, he had more of that mentality. Uh, we had worked for 18 years. We had struggled. We had made very little money. We had invested all our, our money back into the business. And he, he he decided after the acquisition that really he wanted to pursue other avenues. He wanted to do stuff like real estate and investing in stocks and bonds. And that wasn't anything that I knew anything about. And it's not in my nature. So I just wanted to you know keep working. And so he actually left the company um, in 2011. After all the deals were done, we sold the company in 2008. But we had a, this is one of the, you know, he asked me, did I learn anything about, you know, selling a business? I learned a lot. I learned that, and this was the biggest thing I ever learned, is that there's so many ways to skin a cat in an acquisition. So you don't just, you don't have to just sell your company. You can do all kinds of really creative deals. And, and one of the ways that we were able to get the full value for our company, you know, we were like telling 3M we wanted, you know, this much money. And they were like, well, you know, how do you justify that? And we justified it and they said, and, and a lot of my justification, people do this on Shark Tank all the time, is what, what the company's gonna be in a couple of years. You know, we're gonna grow to this and this. And the sharks always say the same thing. That's really nice, but that's not where you are right now. And you need my money to get there. And 3M said something similar, except they said, look, put your money where your mouth is. If you believe that, pull the money off the table and prove it to us. So stay on board. And if we hit this number in 2009, we'll pay you more money. And if you hit this number in 2010, we'll pay you more money. And so it was a really good deal. And it was, and, and we hundred percent believed in what we were doing, what we had. So we, we signed up and all those deals ended in 2011. At the end of 2010, we hit our numbers. 3M said, congratulations. Here's the rest of your money. And then the deal was, was pretty much done. And, and that's when my, my old partner, you know, decided that, you know, he wanted to pursue investment opportunities. And, and for me, I kind of liked what I was doing. And so I actually accepted 
to stay on with 3M and continue as a developer and a consultant and, and also to try and sell some of the accessories that I had been left with. And so I just kind of continued on in business. But at that point, I was alone. I, I wanted to touch on the, I guess, your other companies first, because I, I think, I mean, you can jump on YouTube and see your pitch. I watched that beforehand and watch all the good stuff. But could you tell us when you made contacted the manufacturer talking about with the sponge and locked them up? How did you even know how to go to this company and do this? And can you tell us just the experience leading up to going on Shark Tank? My entire life story and successory is all built and predicated on experiences that I had along the way. The, the experience that I had, I started out manufacturing buffing pads. And the buffing pads were made out of foam. I had already had years and years experience dealing with all the different foam companies. So as we grew and started selling buffing pads, I would you know try to research, is there better foams? Is there other companies. So I would look up other companies and then other companies would contact me, say, Hey, we heard you guys heard about you guys. You're making this great buffing pads. Do you know about our foam? And they would send me samples. And this company in Germany had sent me samples of their foam many years before. And I had, you know, I had pretty good experience with their product. They made a really durable product. And when I started the project to make the hand scrubber, I knew the, the top five or six foam companies in the world. And I sent a, an email out to all of them. I said, I'm starting a new project for a really rough scrubbing sponge. Please send me all of the samples you think that are, you know, the roughest foam sponge material that you have. And I'll test it. And everybody sent me their samples. And the roughest one that came back was from this company in Germany. And so I contacted them. I said, hey, I really like what you sent me. Could you make it a little bit stiffer? Can you make the whole size a little bit bigger? Can you make the density a little bit stronger? Can you, you know, and, and they, they would send me samples and I would test them and I'd say a little bit this, a little bit more. And eventually they sent me this amazing material that I had developed with them. And that's what was for a hand scrubber. And we named it Scrub Daddy and it failed. And it failed because it was in the wrong market. We were basically trying to sell it as a hand scrubber for body shops when it's true meaning in life. So as a dish scrubber for every household. And, you know, luckily I, I didn't trash, you know, the project and I, and I remembered it and it kind of resurrected in 2011. Now, once I started using the material and I realized how unique it was and how it had these really specialized properties, that's when I was like, Hey, I helped them develop that and I'm going to go and start marketing this thing and selling it. And they're going to start selling it to other people. And, and that's my work. I'm not going to let them do that. So I called them up and I said, Hey, remember that project? I think it's, you know, I want to re resurrect it and I need to know how I can get you know, exclusivity on that. And at the, at the beginning, they only wanted to give me exclusivity on it in the US. And I was comfortable with that because it's the only place I knew I was going to be selling this thing. And we worked out a volume. They said, we need you to buy this much dollars a year. And if you buy that, we'll give you the US. Well, I was selling that amount within like six months. And I went to them and said, I want all of North America. And they said, well, we'll we need to up the, the amount. I said, well, go ahead. Let's up the, the volume. So we did that. And about six months later, I said, I want worldwide exclusivity. And they were like, okay, well, we up the amount and lock in worldwide exclusivity. And so it was, you know, a negotiation and a renegotiation and a renegotiation. But that, you know, pretty much how I, I found the company and the material and, and, and decided that I needed to lock up exclusivity. I'm very, very into intellectual property. So if I have an idea, I patent it, I trademark it, I copyright it. I always look for something that I can get that I can get exclusivity on. And if I can't get exclusivity through a legal means, patent, trademark, or copyright, then I look for a way to lock up exclusivity with a company so that they can't sell the product. And then it's just basically intellectual know-how, and we call it trade secrets. It's like the kernel's secret recipe, right? They've got yeah. it locked up in a vault. Anyone can, can make it. It's not like they have some special ingredient. They're just not going to tell you how they do what they do. And it's the same thing with Coca-Cola. They have a secret formula. So they don't want to patent that because if they patent that, they tell everyone what it is. 
but we get to keep it in, instead we get to keep it a trade secret that's when the scrub daddy meeting beyond the tank are those the guys that you because i noticed yes. they were talking about euros okay so that now makes sense i was wondering why you're talking to them and if they were investors but those no, were the so original the guys, guys. The, the guys in germany that you're that you saw yeah. that's the the foam comp that's the company that makes the scrub daddy foam in germany and that I have exclusivity with. If you were a younger entrepreneur or ones who are listening, what would you suggest to them? What advice do you have for them? And what's the best way for them to say thank you for you doing the interview? Oh, so there's a couple of things. The first is, God, I wish I could go back and talk to myself. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I made some really critical errors and I'm really fortunate that none of them knocked me out because the truth is, is that most small businesses fail. Well, most within the first year and then another big bunch within the first five. And the main point of that is, and I always hear this in business school, it comes down to you're undercapitalized. The reason I don't totally subscribe to that is because I, I played this game about price and I was offering the best possible detailing car washing service in my area, but I was trying to compete on price. And so, you know, if someone was offering do your car for a hundred dollars, I would say, well, I can do it for 90, you know, cause I wanted the business. I was so hungry for the business instead of saying, well, you can go to that guy and I want you to take a look at the quality of their work. I know that mine's $150 because you're going to get $150 of, of real benefit from, from what I do. When I do a car, it's going to be immaculate. When they do a car, they're going to cut corners and that's the only way they can do it for that price. And I would have, you know, looking back, that's the way to really grow a business because then you make the amount of profit that you need to sustain your growth. And that's when people are always like, you're undercapitalized. Well, you're undercapitalized because you didn't charge what was really appropriate for your service and you played a price war game. And in a price war, the business is loose. And I never do that anymore. I know that when I make a product, it's going to be the most premium. I am the most expensive sponge that's ever been produced. And it's because it's the best sponge in the world, hands down. And we can't charge. I can't compete with a $1 sponge. If you want that, that's that's what you get. You get a stinky, smelly, moldy, gross, bacteria-laden <laughs> sponge. If you want the greatest kitchen scrubbing tool in the world, it's $4. And when I, when I get $4 from that, that sustains the business. And I'm able to use money for marketing, for research and development, for product improvement, for customer service, for new product development. And that's the way to sustain your company. And so you know, if I could go back, talk to myself, I'd be like, dude, when you're talking to these customers and a guy comes in and first he negotiates you down from your price because you have competition and you don't say, well, I'm, I'm a much better service. And then he's like, and I got two cars. So give me a better price. And I, I would normally have lowered my price even more. And at the end of the day, I would have done both this guy's cars and made almost no money. And now I would have said to that guy, I'm not even budging off my price. I have the best service. If you want our service, I welcome you to go try the other guy first and we'll always be here when you're ready. And that would be the way to run the business. And that's that's a common mistake that I think young entrepreneurs make all the time because they're so hungry to start their business. They want a lot of volume. And instead of making money, they're too interested in just turning over volume. And at the end of the day, they don't make any money. And it's a very sad experience. I've seen this many times. People working so hard and they're doing such high volume. And then they look at their books at the end of the month and like, we did nothing. All I did was work my tail off and I made no money. That's not the way to run your business. I think the other, the other big thing that I would, uh, I would say if I could go back, there's so many different good lessons I've yeah. learned, <laughs> but uh, I would say, uh, if you want to go into business, you need to understand that you are married to the company and the amount of hours that you need to invest and put in is something you need to be prepared to give up several years of your life. You need to say, yeah, I love 
playing ice hockey. I love, you know, uh, doing, you know, going out with my friends every night, but I'm giving that up because for now I'm investing that into the business because it will require at the very start of it, it requires about 90% of your time. And, you know, a lot of my friends made fun of me and were really unhappy when they were, you know, traveling and going out at night. And I was like, dude, I can't, I, I got to be up tomorrow morning. I have to, I have to, I have to do rags tonight at three in the morning and then go back to bed so I can be up at six to start, you know, doing cars. And a lot of them were like, dude, I don't understand that. But they all went and worked for someone else. They all went and got nine to five job. And there's such a big difference between starting a company and getting a nine to five job that if you, if you aren't prepared to make that commitment, then be prepared to fail. And I, I knew that I was a hundred percent committed and I, I didn't just put in three or four years. I put in 18 years for my first success. My first big success was selling my company to 3M. And before that, I struggled every single day. And I honestly can tell you at, at probably year 17, some of my employees were making more money than me because I wasn't drawing a salary. I was only getting profits. And, you know, there was, uh, I, I just kept plowing all the money back into the business and finally it all paid off. So. Be prepared to put in the time and the effort. It's not an easy game being an entrepreneur. Hey there, one quick message. Hope you're enjoying all of our episodes. If you are, then consider subscribing to our weekly podcasts. Just search for Millionaire Interviews in your podcast player. And be sure to look for the Chuck Norris album artwork. Thanks again for tuning in. Just one last question. What do you see for your future? Oh, we are. Um, so Scrub Daddy is exploding. We start with one product, a smiley face sponge. I have almost 30 products now, and we are continuing to launch new and innovative products. And we're going to become a worldwide recognized brand. If you go look for Scrub Daddy now, we're on the shelves in every major retailer in the United States, Kroger, Bed Bath & Beyond, Walmart, Target, Home Depot, CVS, Walgreens, Meyer. If you name a major retailer, we're in it. And our major expansion is in Europe right now. And I just got back from uh, QVC Germany, where we sold you know, a couple hundred thousand sponges on television. And well, thank you for coming on and sharing your story. And we really appreciate it. My pleasure.